Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I hope you're all doing well. I've had a rough night, <laughs> but uh, hopefully by God's grace, uh, the message will be clear today. So for a couple of weeks now, we've been uh, going through the story of Esther. Uh, and the book of Esther uh, invites us and draws us behind the scenes of the Persian royal courts. We hear the words spoken by these powerful men whose few words could mean the difference between life or death for an entire population. And at the center of that power is the Persian king Xerxes and his right-hand man Haman. And in the, in the eyes of the world, these two men were the most powerful men. And, and, and they shaped the world and society at large. And the book of Esther reflects his historical perception. He, the king is mentioned 190 times, many, many times. His presence is felt all throughout. But if you read through the book of Esther, you get the sense that these two people are not really quite in control of anything. But there's a higher power at work. There's an invisible God who does not need to show himself or say anything out loud to change the course of history. It's the invisible God who is unseen and unheard who has the final word over the world. And this is what Esther and the Jews at that time experienced for themselves. And it turned them into a community of celebration. And this is what we are also being invited to do today. So that we also may became a, become a community of celebration. Wouldn't that be great if our church truly became a community, a solid community, who truly celebrates the God of grace? So let's take a look at what happens here in chapter 9, so that we ourselves may be drawn into that. Let me read to you parts of chapter 9, not the whole thing. It says there, on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now, the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamedatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted if it pleases the king, Esther answered, Give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out these, this day's edict tomorrow also, 
and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done, and edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th day of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as a month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. This is the word of the Lord. Notice in verse 26, it says that in these days of feasting and fasting that eventually became the Feast of Purim, it was a festive celebration. It's a big, big, joyful celebration. It, it, in fact, it's the second most important event in any Jewish calendar. Uh, even today, by the way, the Jews still celebrate this. And the rabbis even had a saying that uh, even though throughout the year moderation is required, but on the day of Purim, you can drink wine until, quote, you can't tell the difference between blessed be Mordecai and cursed be Haman. So it's this joy celebration. It's a festive celebration. And the whole community celebrates. How can we become the same? How can we be so filled with thanksgiving and rejoicing that we also celebrate together as a community? Let's look at that. Let's look at that today. And we'll look at that through these three lenses. Let's first look at the reason and the resources for that celebration. And finally, the results. The reason, the resources, and the results. Now the reason, the Jews anyway, at that time, they celebrated because it says there, the Jews got relief from their enemies. Now remember that in previous chapters we looked at, Haman, who was introduced as the enemy of the Jews, he got the king to sign a decree saying that 11 months from now, on this day, we're going to wipe out all the Jews. Wipe them all out. But then Queen Esther learns of this. He, she rises to the occasion and she speaks on behalf of her people at the risk of her life. And the king listens to her and heeds her and eventually gets Haman hanged on the gallows. So Haman is dealt with. But the problem is the first decree was still there and it could not be revoked even by the king himself. So Esther and Mordecai comes up with this brilliant idea. Let the king sign a second decree to counter the first one. That is, you give the Jews permission to prepare and to gather in every city and to defend themselves and fight back. Now maybe Esther was hoping that you know, this second decree would discourage any of their enemies from even trying. But what happened anyway was that many did try to kill them. And there was great bloodshed. And many of the enemies of the Jews were killed. And I'll notice, by the way, it says there a couple of times in chapter 9 that the Jews, when they destroyed their enemies, they did not take their plunder, even though it was legal, even though it was you know, almost expected that they would do that. But they didn't do it to make it a point that this was an act of self-defense. This was not to plunder or oppress anyone or to steal anything. It was a lack of justice against their enemies. 
And they won and they got their rest and they celebrated. Now, some of you may be wondering, I don't quite relate to this. I don't really have any enemies. (laughs) Now, some of you know you do. But if you stop to think about it, well, isn't the world full of conflict everywhere? There are people who try to abuse you, people who criticize you, people who scam you, people who lie to you, people who look down on you, who who try to take the credit away from you, people who make fun of you. Wouldn't it be great if we got rest from our enemies so that they can't hurt us anymore, so that we can finally have peace? When that happens, we would be like the Jews, such that our sorrow is turned into joy, such that a season of this grieving and hurting would finally end. That would be a great reason for celebration. Well, how do we get there? We'll talk about that later. But for now, notice that for the Jews, how did they get there? Well, it says there in verse 3 and a couple of times that at one level, you know, this, there was a huge psychological shift in society because Haman, their enemy, was deposed and hanged. And then suddenly, this new guy, Mordecai the Jew, gets installed into the seat of power. And so naturally, all the other rulers wanted to please this new boss, this new guy. And so they helped the Jews, they supported the Jews, and all the people came to respect and fear the Jews because of the influence they gained. And another level, you could say, you know, throughout the book were given hints that the majority of the Persians didn't really like the first decree. So you can imagine there must have been a general lack of support and weak morale among the enemies of the Jews. So it's all of these factors coming into play, converging to give the Jews a victory. But scholars would say and support this, that on any account, they were not supposed to survive. A minority in a foreign land like the Jews in Persia could not have survived on that alone. On any account, if, even if you combine all that, they were supposed to be killed. The only reason the Jews survived and could celebrate and get relief from their enemies is because on the day their enemies planned to kill them, God instead delivered. See, the only reason they could celebrate and we could celebrate and get rest from our enemies is when God breaks in so that we could break out into celebration. Well, okay, what does that mean then? What, what, what are the resources that we are talking about here that we can get rest and celebrate? Well, in this passage, you'll see not exactly the resources that we need, but we get a foreshadowing. We get a clue as to what kind of resources we need to get there. See, it says there in verse 13 that after the first day, the Jews, you know, got the upper hand over their enemies. They won. And then the king comes and then Esther says, you know, I'm going to request for the king one more extra day so that while my, my enemies are on the ground, I get to kick them in their guts. You know, make sure I purge the city of Susa of enemies where presumably the family of Haman and the main forces were. Make sure I, I purge them. And while I'm at it, <laughs> let's get the 10 sons of Haman hanged. And by the way, by this time, the 10, son of, the 10 sons of Haman were already dead. So this is asking for the corpses of the 10 sons to be hanged on the gallows. They were making a statement. This is what happens 
to those who oppose us, to those who try to kill us. It's a public display of their violent defeat and our violent victory. See? Now, that may seem quite cruel and harsh for our modern sensibilities, but stop to think about it for a moment. Because isn't that the natural human reflex of every human heart? That is, our default is that when people hurt us, we hurt them back. If someone was harsh to me, then people will say it's only right that I tell people about what happened and somehow hurt that person's reputation. If someone wrongs you and abuses you and robs you of the happiness and love that you deserve, then people will say it's only right that you cut them off, you be cold to them and hurt that person's happiness. In other words, if you hurt me, I'll hurt you back. And hopefully, that will stop you from hurting me anymore. And that's, what, that's, the, that's where Esther and the Jews acted out. They acted out of, the, out of that default of the human heart. But here's the problem with that. That only makes the situation worse. When you fight evil with evil, you don't overcome evil. You only become a harder person. You become colder. And you're only making that person into more of an enemy against you. They get angrier, they get more vengeful, and they're going to want to hurt you back. And when they hurt you, you're going to want to hurt them back. And on and on it goes. It's a vicious cycle. So for example, did Esther's victory here, did it give them rest? Yeah. Not really. Because eventually, the Jews are going to have to face another enemy. They're going to face another conflict. And the rest stops and the celebration fades. See, we're looking at the bigger picture now, beyond Esther, and this is what the scriptures are showing us. Repeatedly, historically, the Jews or the Israelites, when the enemies came to hurt them, and they hurt them back, and when they won, they get the rest they want. They celebrate, but then it breaks. Moses gives them rest, then it breaks. Joshua gives them break, uh, gives them rest, then it breaks. Esther gives them rest, then it breaks. See, the rest from their enemies never lasts, and the celebration always stops. That's why towards the end of the Old Testament, you have the prophets coming in saying that, you know, someday there's going to be a Messiah who's going to give us the ultimate rest, the complete and final rest from all our enemies, from all evil, injustice. And we can celebrate for good. See, I'm no longer just talking about Esther chapter 9 because Esther and the Jews, they're not going to give us the resources that we need to get the rest and celebration that we want. They acted out of their natural human reflexes, but we needed a supernatural divine resource. We needed something more than ourselves. We needed God. And so Jesus came. And what does Jesus do? Jesus gets hanged on the cross like Haman gets hanged. But Haman, you know, he had it coming to him because of his great wickedness. Jesus comes running to us because of his great love. You know what that means? You know what that means for us who are trying to get rest from our enemies? Here's what that means. It means the cross of Jesus Christ is revealing to us that God is not so concerned with destroying this enemy or that enemy, enemy, but enmity itself. 
He's come to destroy the enmity that's inside us, that's turning us against each other and against God. See, if Jesus agreed with Peter and took up the sword, and let's, let's go fight against that Roman soldier, well, you know, he might have won and gotten Israel another temporary rest from the Romans, from another nation, from other person who hurt us. Yeah, but Jesus didn't do that. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He's saying, I'm not here to fight the battles of Israel against Rome. I'm not here to fight your battles against your enemy. I'm here to fight God's battle against enmity, against evil, against the cancer that's eating away at us. Jesus is not here to destroy those people who hurt him. He's not here to destroy us. He's here to destroy what's inside us, what's turning us against him and against each other. And how does Jesus do that? Jesus doesn't violently hurt those who hurt him. No, he he responds with a violent goodness, a violent grace. And he hangs on the cross. And remember what he said on the cross? As he hung there, you remember what he said? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right in front of those people who are trying their absolute best to hurt him as as much as they possibly can. And Jesus looks at them in love. At the people who abuse him, at the people who mock him, at the people who make fun of him, at the people who oppress him and rob him of justice and life, Jesus looks at them, Jesus looks at us with love, and he prays for his enemies, and he dies for them. And by that stroke of absolute grace, he destroys the enmity within us, right? He destroys that enmity within us. He overwhelms the evil with good. And he turns the enmity in us and he invites us to be part of his community. He's turning enemies to friends, his friends. See, the cross of Jesus Christ is showing us that there's nothing more powerful against our enemies than to love and forgive them. Nothing more powerful. Isn't that what we experience? Isn't that what he did with us? So go and do likewise with your enemies. See, the only way that you can end the vicious cycle is to be violently good to them so that you open the path for your enemies to become your friends. And that's the only lasting way to stop the cycle of hurting each other, of enmity. It's the only way. It's the only way the enmity can turn into community and enemies can become friends and therefore rest, real rest, and therefore real celebration. And the more you do that, the more you'll see God breaking into your lives so that you can break out into a celebration of His grace. Because the more you do that, the more you see here now the results, the results of what this does to you and the people around you. Now notice that for the Jews, here's what happens. You know, they, they overcame their enemies and there broke out a celebration. Uh, they, 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 it says there, days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. It's like Christmas. You exchange gifts with your friends. You share your blessings with the less fortunate so that those who don't have the 
uh, means they can celebrate with you. They can still celebrate during this time. And I know this, Mordecai wrote out letters to the Jews. Being their new leader, he writes out to the Jews across the empire. He says, this is how we're going to celebrate these days. But notice what it says there. It says there that the Jews were already doing it anyway. <laughs> there was already spontaneous acts of sharing and giving and loving. Mordecai only made it official. They, they became a real community. A, there was a solidarity there with everyone, with each other. You, th you think of, for example, uh, soldiers who went through life, and life or death battles together. And they survived. And they came out of it with a, with a deep sense of brotherhood, right? Because they went through it together. They went through the dangers and they survived together. And therefore, there's that bond. There's a deep bond there. There's that bond because that sheer joy of surviving became this undercurrent that really just pushes them towards each other. Now, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us who experience the joy of salvation, the sheer joy of salvation? Just like the Jews did here, we also have a greater celebration, right? A greater rest. What does that mean for us? Well, let me just point out two things. Two practical things for us to be working out of that joy. One, you recognize that the main enemy stopping you from celebrating is not that person. It's not this person. It's not this enemy or that enemy. It's enmity itself. It's the enmity itself inside our hearts, including yours. Including yours. See, for the Jews at that time, you can imagine, before Haman, before Haman, okay, you can imagine there must have been some Jews who hated each other's guts, who couldn't stand each other, who had the history of arguments and squabbles. But then here comes Haman. And suddenly, they literally had to band together to survive. A bigger, badder enemy has come up. We don't have time for these little squabbles of ours. We have to stand together, side by side. See, Jesus shows us that the bigger, badder enemy is not that person. It's sin. It's enmity inside us. It's inside us. It's inside them. And every one of us. See, what that means is there can't be any room for self-righteousness. I can't go around saying, I can't believe this person did such a thing like that. I, I wouldn't do that. No, no, no. I can't say that because Jesus does go to the cross for me exactly because Haman is inside me. And Haman is inside the other person. See, once we realize that, once that baggage of self-righteousness has been taken off by Jesus Christ, then we become lighter and freer to, to love and forgive our enemies so that it becomes easier. Of course, it's not easy. It becomes easier. Jesus Christ frees us to love. And you realize that the Haman you see in that guy is also inside you. And didn't we also need Jesus to overwhelm us with his goodness and love to deal with the Haman inside us, so does my enemy. So you pray for your enemy. You pray that Jesus would also overwhelm 
them with goodness so that they could turn from enemies into friends, turn the enmity into community. So that's one, you recognize the main enemy. And number two is you let the sheer joy drive you deeper into community, drive you deeper. See, the fact is, anyone who has tried to stay in community for some time knows that it's anything but easy, right? It's anything but easy because people inevitably will hurt you and they'll hurt you badly. And this is especially true inside the church because they're supposed to be your family and they would do this. And I'll see, you have three options once you realize this. One, you know, you keep your distance. You stay, you join the community, but you stay on the outskirts. I don't want to go in too deep. I don't want to give any meaningful connection or attachments of my heart because once they hurt me, it's going to hurt bad. At least this way, I stay safe. But you'll never be part of any meaningful community, any meaningful celebration that way. So there's a second option. Well, the second option is I go in deep. I go into the weeds of their lives. I share life's celebrations and sorrows together. I enter into profound relationships and friendships. But then they hurt me. And when they hurt us, it cuts to the heart. And sooner or later, I can't handle that. I can handle that. I have to detach. I have to distance myself. I have cut that off. And you're swerving from community into enmity. You're swerving from friendships to enemies. But there's a third option. And that is, you go in deep. And when they hurt, you stay. You stay to love and forgive them anyway. Well, how in the world do you do that? How in the world do you do that? Well, for the Jews, when they came out on the other side of Haman, that sheer joy pulled them together. Pulled them together into a deeper community. Isn't that what we need also? That sheer joy of salvation to be an undercurrent that constantly pushes us towards each other. So we bond and we stay to love and forgive each other, to stay in community. You know, Dostoevsky, he was at one point faced with the prospect of execution. And at the last moment he was reprieved, he says that the presence of death heightened all aspects of life. It seemed like there was deeper colors it seemed like there was a new reality to it. Existing, just breathing, just waking up the next morning, just talking to my friends. Everything seemed brighter and more meaningful and more joyful. If we really understand that Jesus has rescued us from certain death, from certain enmity, from certain mutual destruction, then that sheer joy can give us what we need to stay. You let that sheer joy dawn on you and give you strength so that you could stay to love and forgive. So we continue to celebrate, we continue to celebrate Jesus Christ and the gospel that God has offered us because in Him and through Him and for Him, Enmity turns into community, 
enemies can become friends in the grace of God. And therefore, we can rest. We can get relief. And we can celebrate for good. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you did not look at us who rebelled against you, who hurt your heart. And you chose not to destroy us, but to destroy the enmity between us. Father, thank you for your forgiveness, your overwhelming love, your violent grace towards us that overwhelms the evil and sin inside us. We thank you. Thank you, Father. Amen. Now at this point, I would invite everyone to have a moment of reflection, just a silent moment of reflection. Now it's not me and you, it's now you and God. Stand before him with a naked soul and search your hearts for a response to the word he has given us.